So welcome everyone to episode, uh, I, I forgot to check again, I think 16 or something, uh, of Curse with Good Ideas, <clears throat> the podcast about uh, random yet very specific uh, topics. And some people, actually some people uh, I noticed tell me, oh, you have a great podcast about China or anthropology, which was not really what this was supposed to be in the beginning, but uh, I guess many episodes have actually been about yeah China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, but we also had stuff about India and uh, I don't know just random writing tips and stuff. So and it's not really about anthropology either, but because maybe because me and Dino are interested in it, and Patrick, you're also interested in China, have been are I don't know. Want to be yeah. yeah. But actually, today is not about China. I mean, maybe tangentially it will be a little bit. I don't know, but. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely about anthropology or ethnography, and uh, we are a trio of hosts today. So it's me, Gabriela Dzeta from Bergen, and Dino Zhang is in Hangzhou, I suspect. Yeah, I am. And Patrick Harrison joins us from New York. I want to say still correct in the or yes, correct, Mundo. Still secretly on the payroll of the state of California in okay. Brooklyn, New York. Great. And our guests today, we're very happy to have uh, Nicolas Nova and Anais Bloch. I hope I'm not mispronouncing. Um, yes, and, that's correct. Okay. And uh, you're both in Switzerland, I assume? Yes, we are. I'm in Geneva and Anais is in Lausanne, which is okay. from New York or China. It's probably <laughs> like like same town. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, you are both... Uh, are you both working in the same? No, you're not both working in the same institution at the moment. You are in the University no. of Geneva, or I'm I'm, I'm at Geneva University of Art and Design. Okay, and, and I used to work uh, there, but now she's in a different place. I'll probably later, like yeah, introduce yeah. where she does. Yeah, I now work at the School of Art and uh, Communication in Lausanne. Okay, so and uh, yeah, still teaching research. Uh, you're both, from the book I read, uh, your interest there, you're both uh, defining yourselves as researchers. So I guess that's the, the big part of what you do. Um, and uh, you're here today because of this book that just came out, which I think was quite delightful, uh, Doctor Smartphone. And uh, it just came out a few weeks ago, I think, right? Uh, right, correct. I yeah. just launched it. Um, and it's a book, uh, I mean, I'll let you talk about it, but it was really interesting to me because it's, uh, I'm really interested in this kind of new ways of publishing or writing about ethnographic uh, stuff. So you did this uh, research about the smartphone repair shops, which uh, just said like this, it might seem like a very reductive or restrictive topic, but actually the book is about many, many things. So um, if you, I don't know, maybe if you want to introduce a little bit about your background uh, in whichever yeah. order you prefer, just so listeners know where you come from and how you arrived at this book. Yeah. Do uh, you want to start, Anais, if you, if you want? Um, sure. So um, my background is actually in, in product design. I first studied a bachelor degree at the um, School of Art and Design in Lausanne. And then I moved to London where I started working as a designer and then uh, I decided to study a master degree in anthropology um, in material culture, which is actually where I met Nicola, 
who came once to uh, present his project about uh, gestures related to our, uh, I mean, uh, it was about smartphone. And uh, <laughs> and I found it super interesting because he was uh, very interested in the relationship between design and anthropology, uh, which is why I got in touch with him. And uh, and yeah, and from then on, we started collaborating a little bit on a first project about um, the the cloud computing, and uh, eventually we started working on this project about mobile phone repair uh, practices in Switzerland. So Great. yeah, this has been like a two-year thing, right? A couple of years of research. Or yeah, that was a two years. A little more research project. I mean, the field work was about uh, was for two years, but I think the research uh, was for a bit longer. longer that's that. yeah, and yeah, that's nice because uh, since my background is actually in design, and I, I mean, I have also explored the relationship that design or art in general can have with research with a research project. I uh, I was very happy to to meet Nicola and to start this kind of um, ongoing research on how like we can use design and visual material to yeah create some sort of uh, different approach towards a, a project such as this one but yeah I mean I let perhaps Nicola introduce himself yeah, and yeah, talk sure. about the project uh, yeah so, so I, I have a, I have a like mixed background I have a, like a, a background in technology at first and moved to uh, <clears throat> the social sciences later uh, and, and I'm basically interested in how people use technologies in, in, in general. And I ended up working in an art and design school, the Geneva University of Art and Design. Uh, and, and there, I mean, <clears throat> I have many activities there, but, but it was this, um, this project that I've always wanted to, I mean, to work on since I work with like smartphone gestures is to focus on like the, I mean, the, when the death of smartphone or, or, or what happened when all those things like breaks down of incidents and and stuff like that and 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 I started noticing all those things like all those places could be hackerspaces fab labs and shops that appeared in the last probably uh, 10 years or 15 years or so <clears throat> and and that I, I felt like oh this is this is intriguing this is uh, I mean uh, it's not really a, a scientific motivation it was more like some some kind of uh, hypothesis that some people might go to uh, Silicon Valley to observe like technological design and, 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 and the future. And my, my interest was more to look at like where, what happened when, when phone dies and, and, and what happened when right. you have people trying to do something, help like caring for uh, those devices and, and eventually for people. So, I mean, uh, it, it went through like uh, the usual process. Of course, it was like a two years like fieldwork project, but Generally, you have to submit like some kind of like funding requests. So, yeah, the yeah. project much longer. Probably, I mean, the, the the idea, the first idea is about the project started around like 2016, mm. and then the time to get the money, and then to get NIS involved, and then afterwards, after the fieldwork, to work on like, yeah, the yeah. edition of the, the 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 book and and everything. It like. Yeah, I would say it's a five years project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, because uh, because of this, and and probably one last word about the the motivation. We, I mean, I I I, I used to travel a lot. Now with COVID, it's a bit different, but um, there's a lot of repair practices here and there. I used to collaborate uh, like with uh, like phone companies as a more like a digital ethnographer, and there's been a lot of work about like repair and phone repair, but. Uh, 
<clears throat> one of the reasons to focus on Switzerland is because, of course, uh, I mean, it's a very, we, we might argue that it's a very Western thing being like from Switzerland. But one of the reasons for me was also that it's, uh, it's kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people to think that there are repair practices in a, in a, in a wealthy country like Switzerland. And, I, and that's something that that's annoyed me uh, considerably, uh, especially because it, it's, it's related to the whole, this whole discourse in SDS uh, about how repair and maintenance practices are neglected and are often taken care of by people who are not. Uh, from the country, so I, I felt it would be interesting to to have this kind of dimension to to look at neglected places and 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 try to understand how even in a wealthy country such as uh, Switzerland, uh, repair practices happen and 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 have they some, somehow happen uh, in a way that is not like super uh, like fully official or fully uh, yeah, uh, correctly done with like uh, the, the, the the telecommunication companies. So it was like an interesting case to contrast this with other places that I also observed in a different projects, like in uh, like in Cuba, for instance, or in in, uh, in Hong Kong or in uh, in the U.S. and uh, and even in some African uh, countries that I that I visited. So, the, the, situating the research there in, in Switzerland was a way to consider this kind of digital culture in a different way, uh, so to say. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it was also surprising, I guess, when I, I, I knew what the book was about uh, and I knew it was based on research in Switzerland and I, I still thought, you know, wow, okay, yes, th there must be, uh, but are there enough to, to make a research of these shops, you know, because one assumes that like not even European or Western, but Switzerland is like wealthy, pristine, uh, country they imagine is just like luxury malls and shops and stuff. Uh, and of course, there are, you know, there are repair shops there and there are re repair shops here in Bergen, like a, a small city, I mean, small for yeah. a European uh, um, standard, but in Norway and there are repair shops everywhere. So I think it's quite, it's quite, uh, it is a counterintuitive choice maybe for, uh, yeah. for uh, anthropological writing to, to focus on your backyard or your cities, but um, I think it's quite productive. And as I said, in the book, you, you really realize quickly that it's not about Switzerland only it's there are like there is migration and there is a family and there is a lot of uh, connections to other places uh, Dubai is one of one of the vendors mentioning Dubai and uh, others coming from uh, Algeria or like different places so it's quite it's quite cool um it means I mean it's 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 also uh if I if I may uh, like say something about that it's it, it was really a, a, a starting point. Probably also another reason was that it was I had to get a grant for like my uh, tenure, and and, <laughs> and and one of the reason I mean it's all of this is practical reasons, but in in a way uh, one way to to secure funding from the public uh, government was also to, to 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 show that there's a public problem, but there's also a, right. a solution. But there are people taking care of those uh, things here uh, with concerns about the environment, absolutely sense of technology and that that this kind of knowledge could be probably uh, relevant for public policies uh, about like repair practices and, and and electronic waste and stuff like that so it's it's a mix of like practical reasons and scientific reasons but quite quickly we realized that the people in those shops were not like i mean some are swiss but some are coming from uh, different countries and and it's this kind of like network of people that is that is super uh, interesting and it's not i mean it's not super surprising there are other uh, yeah. other bodies of work in anthropology looking at this kind of transnational uh, kind of research but 
the fact that we took like the, the sort of end of the network with people repairing like broken screens here and it led us to like connections with like people from, I mean, in other places in Europe, but also uh, around the Mediterranean Sea or um, uh, uh, Southeast Asia was like probably something that, that is important to uh, keep in mind. Yeah, definitely. I was curious about the how you actually did the fieldwork part of the research. Were you already like, did you do each one a different city, or did you go together to the same shops, or? And probably let let yeah. Anais comment on, on on that. Yeah, well, I was um, I was in charge of the uh, not all of the fieldwork because Nicolas also visited some shops, but uh, I mainly visited the the shops that are mentioned in the book. And I first started by just like looking around, visiting the places nearby the train station and uh, yeah, finding these places online as well. And at first I, I just entered the shops and pretended that I had like some issues with my own phone or, <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and actually it was, uh, I, at first it was quite difficult to to stay for a little moment like for longer than just repairing a fake problem uh, on my phone because most of the people uh, in these places were a bit reluctant to having a researcher yeah, uh, yeah. staying around and observing um, what they were actually doing for a living and and that's actually how i started um, sketching the the first uh, the the first I mean the first time I I sketched uh, one of the Reaper technician was just after uh, he refused my presence as an observer because I first explained to him that we were actually working on a research project and I was trying to be as honest as possible but uh, yeah he was not very interested in this research and. Yeah, he just didn't really want to spend so much time on that. And therefore, I, I just uh, managed to take a, a picture from the shop and uh, I started uh, making a visual. And then I came, because actually I have to say that I just decided that this shop was very interested because he was uh, a bit, um, he was kind of interested in the, in the layout and the design of the shop was a bit funny and there were a lot of like material that were actually super um, creative in a way that I would not find this type of decoration in other places and I thought okay I think I really want to start the fieldwork here and uh, and yeah therefore I, I, I did this first sketch and I came back the day after and I asked the guy that uh, I, I, I told him that I wanted to make a perhaps to make a comic about uh, their work and uh, and to use these comics for the research. And he found the, the, the sketch very interesting and he was actually super happy about that because he oh, wanted to great. put it on, yeah, he wanted to put it on his Facebook and on the Facebook page for the mobile phone company, for the um, re repair shop. And he actually invited me to stay and to, to draw them uh, for a week. And that was it. It was really the, I think it was the starting point of the, the field work. But uh, actually before that step, we spent uh, about three months doing online investigation, online ethnography. So yeah, I kind of knew where these places were located and I already had a big picture of, um, of yeah, the field. 
That's interesting. Before. So I, I thought, yeah, because I mean, the listeners uh, who have not read the book yet, well, they should, but it's uh, it's a uh, it's quite short. It's not the usual academic monograph. I think it's a hundred. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it's I would say half text, half uh, images, and their images are very. I mean, I really enjoy the mix because it's just photographs that are edited, um, and then there's a lot of comics uh, through which you tell the stories of these people. Um, so I thought this was a like a decision you took before even starting, but no, it's it's kind of an emerging uh, strategy that you. You had to develop to get uh, like an ethnographic uh, entree into the field. Yes, totally. It was totally improvised, and actually, I think we were both quite happy with this uh, improvisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, but finally, I, I really, I think it really helped throughout the whole project this drawing practice, because since I started gathering like sketches here and there, I could actually use these sketches also as a co communication tool also with like other technicians and also because I, I'm not a repair person myself. Mm. So in order to understand repair practices, sometimes you can be a bit tricky. And also like some of the people, as we were mentioning before, uh, were not um, speaking French so fluently, so they couldn't really explain to me what they were doing. And therefore, we would just draw to each other to yeah, communicate what was happening. And yeah, it really helped. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's, that's interesting. And also, I think there is a lot, not a lot, but there is a, an amount of writing in anthropology or even sociology about yeah. using drawing as an ethnographic Absolutely, technique. Yeah. But it's, yeah. I always find it, it's very much like, okay, this is how you can engage people or, or maybe experiment with it, but it's rare to find a book that, that actually uses all the sketches as, as materials or as just a form of writing, which is, um, so it's, it's a quite interesting development in this sense. It's, pro it's probably, uh, I mean, one of the, I wouldn't say the perks, but one of the good thing in being in a in a in an art and design school is that we, even though the funding is coming from like a, like a very like standard social science kind of uh, funding, there is also some 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 degree of freedom to and and also certain expectations that. Uh, we could experiment with um, not necessarily the way we frame things because that was like quite quite standard, but in the way we could craft something that would uh, give a proper account of what I, what what we what we like analyzed and, and noticed on the field, and that's um, I think certainly helped. Even though, like the as Anais mentioned, it was really like something that happened, like the the, the drawing part happened because of the relationship she tried to build with the uh, uh, the shop owners, and it was a way to build this kind of rapport. Like this kind of relationship, and and tr tr I mean to build a trust uh, with, with those people. Eventually, we I mean when we started, like probably in the middle of the project, trying the field work, trying to think about uh, uh, like not not necessarily like the, the the way to publish about it, but the way to frame the the result and the material. We realized yeah. it was it, 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 I mean it's uh, it's basically another way to frame like, ethnographic vignettes in a, in a way that. 
can also be useful, not, I mean, it's not just for researchers, it could be useful for, for the research participants, could be useful for, like we are in the design school, so some, some students might be uh, willing to use that as the starting point of something they could design. Uh, we, I mean, it's a way also to build a connection, a bridge between research and education. And, and eventually people are working on public policies or any, anyone interested in this could find a way to understand those people. And then obviously there are other parts of the book which are a bit more formal and, and analytical. Yeah. yeah, and also, I mean, I think it's mentioned in the book that this is also a good way to uh, protect privacy to a certain extent of people yeah. that don't want to get photographed yeah. or, or represented yeah. and to exactly turn it up. So it's, it's really great. S some people are not always there with official uh, papers. And... Yes, yes, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and probably another thing that I wanted to mention about the format, it's, it's I mean, uh, of course, it, it looks a bit like, like probably not the standard kind of uh, anthropological monography, but we choose to, to, to use the, the, um, the, I mean, this idea of having chapters with uh, yeah. portraits yeah. as a way to, I mean, th th it was important for us to find a way to, to give a proper account of this diversity that we noticed, but not like, a thick description that is not too too like like too too, too tedious to read, and we thought the, the portrait and the, the the I mean the way to frame different voices with portraits could be useful. So there are like the the, the drawings, the illustrations, or the ethnographic vignettes, but there are also some paragraphs that describe yeah, yeah. from our perspective how we saw those places, and also some paragraphs from like the, the, the technicians and the shop owners or the fab lab or hackerspace uh, repairers, how they came into this to show like this, this kind of polyphony, this, this kind of like the different voices. And I, I do think it's quite important these days in, in social sciences to, I mean, to, 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 to find formats that could give those different accounts and not just like the start sort of like, there's the author of the monography and that's it. So that was also one of our concerns. Yeah, I think so. I think it's important. And it's very visual because, uh, I mean, you read the introduction, which is uh, in the conclusion also they're properly textual, I would say, but then it just gets into this, uh, you call them portraits, I think, uh, each chapter, and it's a mix of stuff. So it's it's very strikingly different. Uh, but also, you, it's very familiar, because if you read comics, or if you read uh, like yeah. instruction manuals a little bit, some places look like with photos of uh, repair pieces and things. So it's quite interesting. Um, I think the book is, is quite connected to... Uh, the idea of repair and ma maintenance in general, which I think yeah. it's it's very uh, it's very central in infrastructure studies, yeah. and also to hacking. I think you've done uh, work on hacker spaces before, right? So there is this connection between like fab labs as repair spaces and these uh, smartphone repair spaces as fab labs. So in a way, it's kind of an extension of of that as well. Of absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, at first, when 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 uh, when I framed the project before. We're working with NIS, I, I had like past work on like hacking and maker practices. And I wanted to treat the shop owners, technicians and the hackerspace and, and put them on the same level. But very quickly when fieldwork started, we realized that the most important part of the repair does not happen in, I mean, some a little bit happen in repair cafes organized by hackerspaces and, and, and fab labs, but the majority happens in those neglected places like, like small shops, small like stores on the street or in like some kind of remote parts of cities or in suburbs. And that's, 
Uh, I think like we had to change a little bit the course of the project, but still uh, uh, we did think it was important to 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 make the comparisons, uh, especially, I mean, it, it's probably a, a very European thing, but in the last probably 10 to 15 years, there was a lot of expectations by public institutions that hackerspaces, oh, yeah, fab yeah. labs would be like, like sort of the <clears throat> savior of technology and will help people to reappropriate technology, repair stuff and build a new kind of economy. And I, I think it was, at the time I was a bit like skeptical about that, but I, I, I do not think it's, 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 it's like bad per se, but I was interested in showing that probably the sort of like promises that were the expectations about hackerspaces and fab labs happened partly in those places, but happened in a place that nobody looked into which are like the, 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 the stores and those little shops uh, generally like created by foreign people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I guess that the fab labs and hackerspaces are usually well-funded, legitimate, advertised places. And this place, these other repair shops are, you know, run by people who are maybe not even like they're in danger of uh, not like being uh, reported or working illegally or to some extent. So um, there is this kind of, imbalance between the two you can and see. actually if i can yeah. add something to that i think that's also like one uh question that raises like that uh this type of project because actually making these places visible is yeah. might also be some sort of danger for like i think it could also question the way i mean in to some extent the idea was to actually highlight these places as uh, valuable places for knowledge and for repair and maintenance. But in a way, uh, they can also exist because they are invisible. So yeah. I think that raised an interesting question as well. Did you, did you use the real names of the shop in the book or are they no. made up? Yeah. No, we changed. Uh, we tried to uh, anonymize things as much as possible, and and it's. I mean, for some of them, it would they, they would have been okay, but yeah. not all. And we had to put everyone on the same same page. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of? Uh, I'm curious about the policy uh, outcomes. Like, is there something that the this shop owners or workers would want to be done from a policy perspective? Like, what kind of help would they need, or or are they okay as they are? But I'm not, I mean, I, I let Anais yeah. uh, answer after this, but uh, I'm not sure it's, they want something from policymakers or they realize that there could be, I mean, probably at the tech, technological level, they might like be interested in probably some, some kind of standardization and not mm. something that changes like too much. But in terms of leadership and the relationship with the local institutions here, I'm, I'm not sure they have expectations. It's probably the other way around uh, in the sense that some uh, at the national level or at the, 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 the city level, there could be ways to uh, encourage or to foster or to like work with them in a network or to, to find ways to organize this this kind of, uh, I was about to say business, but it's it's in between business and caring kind of uh, uh, activity. And, and and here, there's probably something to, 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 to work on. Because, I mean, one of the problems those people have is that they, there's a lot of turnover of, 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 mm. of people. And also sometimes the business works well, sometimes it's, it's, it's problematic. Um, so there's, prob there's probably ways to, I mean, if, if we consider this kind of activity as something that is not just like a normal standard business, they could be part of another kind of economy that is more about like, like providing services to people. Because we, what we realize in the project is that 
of course, the majority of the, the, the what they do is about broken screens and and, and buttons and, and 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 problems with technology. But they also provide services that are yeah. way unexpected, like like uh, like helping people to like do their tax declaration on uh, on the computer because the, the clients, the customers, they think that it's someone like it's a digital expert, so the, the, yeah. the technician can help them uh, uh, about this, and it's. And this is not something that they, I mean, probably not something they take for, for granted, but it's probably, they, they, they also give tips to people about how to uh, better use the battery, not change phone too much, et cetera, et cetera. So there's probably some kind of like, like coaching slash counseling recommendation, helping the community that could probably be helped in a way with other kind of social institutions that that I think would be stimulating. At least it's stimulating when I had discussions with people at the city level or national levels about, about those things. And I um, pro- probably you have a different perspective. On no, that. I totally agree on what you've said. And yeah, it's, it's actually true that most of the time when people actually enter the shops I visited, it's not necessarily to repair something, it's more to ask some questions. So they're really expecting like to like get nothing in exchange, but just like spending time uh, understanding what's the what's the issue. Um, but yeah, the only thing I could add perhaps is that uh, from what I heard from like most tenants, their, uh, their main issue is with the um, bigger uh, telecommunication companies that started offering repair uh, uh, repair services as well and that's kind of new i mean it started quite recently and um, i mean that was their main complaint Uh, and yeah they were a bit scared to to lose their customers because of that yeah i mean if we're thinking about you know kind of like the politics and the policies around um this uh repair uh sort of world um continuing on the point you just made anais about um larger phone manufacturers suddenly being more repair friendly very early on in your text uh, um you uh highlight um that uh Quote, uh, recently, the short lifespan of smartphones has attracted criticism and pushback with governments legislating to support repair practices and mobile phone manufacturers, both large incumbent companies and newer, smaller firms such as Fairphone, taking steps to make it easier to repair their hardware. So uh, like <clears throat> there's these two issues of one being like planned obsolescence, right? And the weird sort of, if we're thinking about policy, it's really governance by these tech companies. And then the other thing being that uh, as soon as governments seem to make concessions to the right to repair, uh, then the, you know large companies are able to swoop in and corner that as well. So I was wondering if you could maybe just talk about the right to repair and, and how that's going. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's. Um, I don't think there's a lot of uh, progress on that in Switzerland, sadly. But there's uh, this European. I mean, it's mo- mostly uh, it's, uh, Switzerland is not part of the EU or the European Union, uh, but still it has to follow, if, especially if it wants the business to be connected with like the rest of the uh, European Union. So they have to follow certain regulations. So it's quite dependent on the sort of initiatives about the right to repair uh, in um, in. Uh, in Europe, and here, I mean, it's um, 
I mean, it, it, it's not super. Uh, I mean, there are some initiatives, but especially about electronic uh, electronic equipments. But it's not as advanced as it could be. And from my understanding uh, about like the repairs that 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 we we uh, visited, it's not necessarily something that has like direct um, uh, influence on their work. They they complain more about the fact that it's uh, even more it's even it's more and more difficult to repair stuff because some components are glued uh, to uh, one another or some are too too small or too like impossible to understand. But but. Eventually, there might be some some changes. I, I, I we did not focus on this because it's in. Um, I mean, there are some changes in France with the different kind of uh, uh, regulations. Probably in other European countries, I'm not aware of. But but there, I mean, some some companies, and not necessarily like the, the smartphone companies, but in kitchen uh, kitchen appliances like kitchen electronics, they have to provide a certain number of like parts for a certain amount of time, and this like this is sort of like a double-edged sword because at the same time, it as you as you mentioned, there's this tension that uh, it, it it's easier to be for for the repairs to um, to intervene, but at the same time, it's also easier to create some kind of process if you're a big company to uh, uh, take care of that. So, in my, I mean, depending on the, the perspective, it, it might be a bit problematic for certain shops, but could be useful for, could be relevant for like the customers in, the, in, the, in general. But I'd say, I mean, if you if you if you recall what Anais just said about the fact that a lot of people just come in not with a like really a problem and more with a question, my impression that especially the good shops, the, the one who built like like uh, like a strong and um, good relationship with that community, they will still manage to exist because then they will be there to help people and. And because otherwise it might be, I mean, you can buy a, a, a screen online. It's it's okay to do that, but it's another thing to change your screen, especially if you're, you're like if you're like me, you are like completely uh, bad with your hands. You're not good at repairing stuff. So, I mean, my point here is that there might be changes in the in the, in the whole ecosystem, but doesn't mean that it's big companies will take over uh, everything, uh, and and. Yeah, and I hope that because it would be it would be uh, like uh, it would be problematic. I was just thinking of the book while you, you guys were talking. Um, I was one of the things about the just following up with the conversation that the one of the things about labor costs, right? Say in Switzerland, the labor costs are super high, so um, it's not just about getting the parts; it's also just simply because the labor is so so high, and then a lot of time. Because this is just just recent observation. So in the past, for example, when I was living in Australia, things usually just get a replacement when your phone breaks. When you, especially when you get like a contract, your phone comes with like a contract with a telecom company. Yeah. So you say Vodafone gives you a phone with the contract, then it's usually within the warranty you can get a replacement whenever you have an issue with the phone. So a lot of people just get a replacement, even just screen cracks. So easily but people just well if you take that to the uh, to the um to the shop they would just tell you just get it replaced they would never pass you i mean they would never get it actually fixed it's just labor costs are so high they'll rather just give you a new one so this is becoming this is just recent observation uh in china so um so before getting stuff fixed it's just the normal way to do things right this was like street corner repair shops that everywhere mm -hmm. Because the phone is very expensive, but getting the repairs that can be relatively cheap. So, like very cheap, you can get your screen cracks, screen replaced, 
even sometimes in like your book scrap function that you can add even a headphone jack or something if you want to like yeah. they can really hack your phone and stuff for really cheap and these days uh things have changed a lot and one of the things that's very interesting with a lot of product is for example oneplus i think the oneplus strategy in china and um, and abroad is entirely different for example uh OnePlus has always marketed itself as sort of mid-tier or even lower-tier phone that is when you can buy a good phone for cheap. But in China, it's more like you market itself as sort of relatively high-end. So what happens now is basically promotes itself for basically test. It says in the if you go to the store page, it will tell you that it only repair, it only replaces, it doesn't repair, and that is some sort of it's like some almost like a prestige like. Oh, we 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 don't do that anymore. Like we just get you replace a new phone. So, I mean, it's like it's almost the assumption that that's the better way to do things. Like that's the way, almost like that's the way that maybe maybe because the West have been have been doing that. But I mean, a lot of time, as far as I understood, it's not because of they can't repair. It's just the labor cost too high, and it's rather just to get it replaced. But in, in China, for example, the labor cost even right now still it's still acceptable to get your your phone repaired. Uh, there were so many repair shops. Now the repair shop all became chain stores. Mm. Even like you just want to get a screen protector or something, you can pay very like ten RMB for just people to get a like a screen protector for you. So it's very interesting that how repair becoming like almost like a like a poor man thing. Like you don't want to like so that's why I sort of. The phone companies are like, um, no, we just get replaced. But it's actually, it's still actually, even if still fairly cheap to get it repaired. Yeah, I think it becomes a matter of distinction. Like, if you can afford uh, a OnePlus, then it means you 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 can afford replacing it every year, like an iPhone. Basically, it's like you don't need to repair it. Um, it's more of a class thing. But I think this is also why in the in Europe and Switzerland, these shops are run by uh, foreigners, right? But uh, but. Yeah, but but not all. And and okay. one point, and I'll probably let Ananis also uh, give her give her opinion uh, here. But and we have to be careful here because there are different uh, users, different kind of people. You have people uh, who like value the fact that they can go to the local store, like right. nearby, and they don't want to go to the Apple store because it's going to take two weeks. And they go to the, the local store, and they want help right now for like a broken screen, or they just like left the 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 the, the phone in the toilet, or they need some kind of weird like data recovery maneuver. So there's this. There's also people with environmental concerns. They they know it's bad to change their phone like like every 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 year. So uh, they try to keep it as much to, as long as possible. And there is like a part of the population interested in in this. There are also people who uh, I mean I, I think the the point you made you know about the like the contract is super important because in most of the contract. Uh, you have an insurance or you have not. If you don't have an insurance, if you break your screen after two months, uh, you have to pay for a new screen, and you won't be, you won't have the occasion to have like a, 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 a new phone before like next year. And some people even have like two years contract, so it's like 
again, it's, uh, it, it, it reinforces the fact that you need in these two years some kind of help if you have a, a problem. You also have people, as, a, as Anais mentioned, who come to the shop and they, they need some, uh, they have a question about something. They do not necessarily understand about how Spotify works or how to, uh, I don't know, adjust the setting of this and that. So this kind of service, even though there's a lot of labor cost, it, it's, it's, it's relevant for, uh, for, for, for people. And then you have also um, like the, I mean, any kind of like software issues because more and more there are software issues, not just about broken screens and, and buttons and jacks and stuff like that. It's also about software issues, about things that are you, some customers do not understand about the setting, some kind of problem with the algorithm of whatever, or some some kind of application and and this, and this, I mean, also could stay. And it's, it's hard to, I mean, of course the labor cost is, is important, but it, this is something that is hard to, to uh, work with on the other side of the planets. So that are, I mean, those, those reasons probably make that like somehow sufficient for those activities to, um, to, uh, to exist. I don't know, Anais, do, do you have like other examples or? No, I totally agree. And yeah, it's also like, from what I've noticed, is also like uh, um, something that relates to the skills and the know-how because in many of the biggest companies, like telecommunication companies, the repair technicians are probably, because of this labor cost, they, they don't really have much time to spend on a repair, which is probably not the case in the smaller places and uh, also because people have perhaps more space there to explore and try to find random solutions and and dig in a little more I guess and uh, so that was the first thing I wanted to add perhaps and the second thing is that I think that um, some people uh, also cannot really like they, they, they can really they, they cannot afford to replace their phone because they don't have a contract or and therefore they kind of need to have like some help to like even uh, in switzerland even in switzerland <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no, to mention that yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are but some I, people with like without much money yeah, sure. here as well that exists yeah and i think that for these people these places are very important and the uh, third thing is also perhaps this, this relationship with the community that nicola mentioned previously that yeah, you let your smartphone somewhere. It's like an object with all your data, all your pictures, all the information you have. I guess that for some people, it's also this kind of trust that is um, also possible with local people or people they actually visited in the past and they know they can actually rely on that um, That I found uh could be a reason why they actually go there and they, yeah. Which is which is like super fascinating if you think that Apple is trying to build itself as a company that people can trust. And you have like bankers here, when they have a problem with their phone, they go to the local shop and not to Apple <laughs> because they can yeah. see the guy like doing something on the phone. And that you, if you give it to someone at Apple computer, it would go somewhere and you don't know what happens. So there's an interesting tension here that, that I probably, I mean, probably reflect the, the labor cost uh, uh, as well. And, and the, the fact that some people are, I mean, they're ready to give that to some shop and not to a big companies or not to buy a new one. Like, as you said, if you go to Apple, because you have a problem on your phone, you might have to wait three weeks 
until you get it back, repaired or not, because it could be that it's not repairable. But in the smaller places, actually, they, are, they work all the time. They are there and they are actually behind the curtains. Uh, it's, there is much less uh, procedure uh, process, like they don't have to fill in forms. And I mean, they are doing some, some shops are actually trying to organize themselves um, a, a bit better but yeah most of the time it's just you know they just take the, the name of the customers and their phone numbers and and then they start repairing so it's a bit quicker you know you were saying something or yeah i was just saying that a lot of people that i when i was doing my field work i because i was i did my field work with live streams a lot of time we talk about smartphones because people work with smartphones and stuff so a lot of people we, we talked about repair and stuff and a lot of time I've, well not a lot of time, but quite several occasions that I have people, it's very interesting, the situation is quite opposite. They would rather take their phone to the supplier with like say Apple or like Oppo or whatever, than take their phone to the like small repair shop at the computer center because uh, they're afraid their files get stolen. A lot of these people, uh, Lashemis have a lot of files, they have a lot of pictures because uh, a lot, some of them are quite private and well they don't like because they're sort of like celebrities they don't want their people to, to get to take a look at their phone but like, in a sense they would trust um whatever the i mean just the issue of trust is just issue of perception but um it's sort of like the i don't know like like the opposite situation it's quite interesting that to hear that yeah there's there are probably also people like that i mean our, our point is to to say that the, with this kind of diversity of profiles, it can be enough business-wise for for like the shop, the, the little shops to to exist somehow. I think it's also a question of affect in a way, because in one of the main concepts in your book is this idea of, uh, I mean, it's called Doctor Smartphone, and it's about yeah. what yeah. people think about health, their phones, or their phone being you know dying yeah. or sick or, or having problems. So. I think it's also, um, yeah, it's part of this. It's like if you, you care for your phone and you, you feel it's, it has a problem, uh, then you want to care for it in the most uh, appropriate or the most uh, the way that's closest to you, then maybe you can, you can monitor it or you can check that everything is, mm-hmm. is in place. So I think that was a, that's, a, that's a very interesting angle um, mm-hmm. that I think emerged from the fieldwork, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah some, I mean, we, 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 the title of the book is called Dr. Smartphone because we noticed that the sort of like clinical uh, or medical metaphor is quite common. You have like the, uh, la, la clinique du téléphone cellulaire, the cellular telephone clinic, eye clinic, doctor smartphone. Uh, and, and this is quite present, not just in the names, but also in the, the way that the shop is organized with this, this kind of like, where you see like some, some kind of like heartbeats of like drawing oh, yeah. on, the, on the walls. And, and, and the idea that if you break, break your phone, you have to go to the doctor. It's also present in the, the discourse, like the way the, the, the shop owners and technicians would uh, describe their activities at caring for people and, and, and caring for the phone, but in, 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 and also caring for people and, and probably the community. So there's, there's something strikingly uh, interesting in, in, in this, that is, I mean, it's uh, as a, in anthropology, this is not necessarily a, a, a big news, but but it's uh, it's important to remind us that even something as as 
like basic as a smartphone, as like, like digital technology can also be the vector uh, of this kind of, uh, of, of uh, issues and topics. I was curious one thing, I haven't finished reading the book, so maybe this is answered in other uh, portraits or chapters, but uh, I was wondering what, if you, what you could see uh, doing the fieldwork and the research about the supply chains behind these stores. Because uh, I mean, I, I don't know much about it, but where do the parts come from, and how do uh, the, the owners get them, and and what kind of uh, is there something behind it, like some other kind of suppliers, or, or, or do they just order them online from China? <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably Anais can can answer this, and I'll and I'll make comments afterwards. Um, yeah. Well. I, I guess that most of the most of the parts come from China, from um, online online website, or actually a lot of the ten the tenants I met are actually people who travel and try to create connection with some suppliers in China. I mean, not not all of them, but uh, yeah, a few of them this, did this journey. Uh, so yeah. Um, and then there is also, I mean, the interesting thing is that there are actually some connection in between the shop. So um, in during this fieldwork, we met uh, one shop owner who was an ent entrepreneur and he started opening shops here and there. And he decided to open a, um, a shop uh, dedicated to parts, uh, detached pieces, sorry, um, in Lyon in order to supply other repair shops. In so France. In so France. not in Switzerland, but in France. Exactly. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's funny to see also this market develop uh, within, the, within the, the, the repair shops. And, um, but yeah, it's still uh, pretty much based in China, I guess. The, the interesting thing with this, uh, this guy is that he, he realized that if, I mean, he, he was quite unhappy with buying phone parts uh, online because of the quality. So he went to Hong Kong and from Hong Kong to Shenzhen to meet some good suppliers more like the 10 years ago, uh, got friends with them and built a relationship with them, realized that he could, uh, uh, I mean, it would be good to have this kind of business as well for other shop owners. He put it in uh, in Lyon in France because um, the, the, the city is bigger and there are other shops that could probably serve, uh, I mean, also Switzerland and, 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 and France. So it's kind of interesting. I'll go back to the supply chain thing afterwards, but it's kind of interesting to notice that some people uh, expand their business from repairing like screens and cracks and stuff like that. And then to more specialized things like, for instance, uh, uh, buying like bulk shipping or buying parts mm. in bulk and, 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 and starting a shop. But what, what is, um, I mean, what is interesting in some of the, um, some of the, the other technicians, they, I mean, they mentioned like different strengths or different expertise they, they, they had to build uh, in providing those services to their customers. And one of them is definitely the acquisition of uh, prop good phone parts that, that, that could be that could be of better quality. And it means like building relationship with uh, some like 
some sellers that exist in uh, in Europe, for instance, in Paris or in, in London, uh, or they had to go to uh, Southeast Asia. And, and but that, that, that's definitely part of this, what we mentioned at the beginning, this kind of trans-local uh, community. You have one shop, but this shop is connected to probably like like the shop in France or like France in like other 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 places because those guys are, often come from migrant uh, communities and uh, the, the 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 supply chain is about like the parts but it's also part about certain kind of documents that can access to a certain kind of connection to expertise with with local networks like whatsapp groups from local communities or more international communities so it's um what what applies to the supply chain also applies to the way they can build they can build like certain kind of knowledge and expertise about what is this kind of component? What is the proper way to fix this or, or that? And it's a mix of formal and informal relationship that benefits both for the parts and the the, the documents and the, the know-how. Were these uh, the one the, the portraits I read? Most of the repairers had a background in I don't know electronic engineering or, or at least had some experience with it, or they come from different uh, different kinds of repair, and then they found that a smartphone repair could be a lucrative or at least could work as a job. But is this uh, consistent? Like, did, did most of them have this experience before, or did they just reinvent themselves for this job? Uh, I mean, most most of them have this kind of like electronic, uh, electricity, electronic kind of uh, background. But some some of them have like no like, I mean, no higher education uh, background, and some others have a background in something else. For instance, there is this um, uh, this lady in Lausanne. We did. Uh, I don't remember. And she had. She did political sciences at the university, or no? She did social sciences, actually. Social sciences. Yeah. And she, sociology. She, sociology, and she decided to to open a shop and hire her, like technicians. And and uh, I mean, and, and I mean, the majority has this kind of like electronics slash electricity engineering else, but it's sometimes there are other people who started doing this for other reasons that I think is. I mean, it, it, it's important to mention that. And it's important also to mention this kind of kind of gender in, imbalance. Most of the repairs mm. are male, but there were some some female repairs as well. Uh, some at like like the technical level. Some are shop owners. Uh, so that should be also. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's an important point to to raise as well. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. Yeah, no, because my impression was, I mean, I always wondered, uh, it's, it's a pretty new kind of uh, store. Um, just my experience in Italy or the Netherlands where I lived in Europe was always that, yes, there were computer repair stores, um, mm. but the smartphone repair was rather new. And I was wondering if it was a, a model that was imported from places where this practice is more common, like uh, mm. Asia, or or is, if it's just like a, something that emerged at the same time uh, everywhere. Yeah, my impression is that it emerged, uh, and it's okay. it's diff. I mean, uh, compared to like the the standard like uh, computer repair shops in France or or Switzerland, here it's it's something that emerged more out of different communities and expertise. So some, I mean, there's also some tensions. You had like an old guy who had this electricity background in electricity and communication would say, yeah, all those new people, they don't know anything about mm. how the phone works. And I know I know this, but but some others like build thing. I mean, they, they build their expertise on scratch. 
uh, from scratch because they had probably like some kind of interest in like DIY and, and also like certain skills or certain community of people, especially, I don't want to be essentialist here, but but some people coming from North, Af- North African background had some connections with like friends and family and they had like this kind of entrepreneurial impetus to to start something but i mean it's not like it's not very strict and formal like you don't have like the diploma and certifications Uh, that exists i mean you can be certified as apple repair but most of them say well we don't need this and this is just something that that's just it's just a paper i can we can do things differently but also i think it's true that some some of the technicians actually came here they were um i mean i'm thinking about one one of the uh, people i I spent a lot of time with who was actually from North Africa and he first moved to Spain where he first started repairing. And then he heard that actually uh, in France, the, 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 the working condition were actually better. And therefore he moved to France to, in order to repair and he was really well skilled. He was kind of, he had a reputation in the field, let's say. And, um, and therefore he moved to, Fra- to France first and he spent a couple of years there and it started being more and more competitive and then he heard that in switzerland there weren't too many um, repair shops yet and therefore he, he decided to move here in order to to have the best working condition so without official papers <laughs> no but yeah with a reputation uh, his reputation <laughs> yeah it's the king the king of micro soldering yeah, yeah i read i read about this one <laughs> So I was one. So the reputation is like. So this is kind of like an industry. Uh, I mean, they, they they all know each other pretty much, even across Europe. So that's how you can have a reputation. Or well, no, I think I'm exaggerating a little okay. bit, but <laughs> yeah, I guess it's yeah. As Nicolas said, it's kind of uh, some are really family family businesses, so they know each other because they are they are family. And and yeah, there are some people that are well known for for technical skills that are very hard to to, to yeah to master. But it's also related to diasporas of like families who have like yeah. like like cousins in one town from one European country and and the other, and and they I mean that's also the way those networks can 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 yeah. work on somehow, which is which is super interesting to to think about that with regards to digital technologies. I really wanted to like to entice listeners by just like reading a short passage from your book because I thought. Um, this uh, you just mentioned diaspora, and I think that, that there's a passage, uh, and it's from an interview with an informant named, you know, alias B in Geneva, um, and he's like he's French. His father is from Algeria. He ends up like moving to Switzerland. Uh, he his like he kind of walks into like the globalization of this trade backwards because he uh, he he starts out in insurance. He's like a basketball referee. He's, in other words, just kind of an entrepreneur flailing about. And he gets into phone repair by having like, he's trying to sell phones, but customers keep coming in asking for repairs. And so then he just kind of like walks backwards into being a repairman. Um, and I just found this uh, passage really touching. And I feel like it really condenses a lot of what your book is saying um, from the, 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 you know, just the intense human element of repair 
all the way yep. to the sort of um, international and, and technological politics of it. Um, so he says, I opened my first store in Plan Palais area, close to the university. It was the biggest mistake of my life. I thought that students were the biggest phone users and that there are a lot of them in the area, but this was not the right clientele because students are broke. Then I realized the biggest phone users are the diaspora. They use their phones a lot because it is the only link they have with their families. It was this population I had to reach. The people who made the business work came from La, uh, La Paqui, a very international neighborhood. I opened here in 2007 and the business took off. Most people who come from the third world need self-esteem. They need to value themselves. As we started to grow, we opened three more stores covering each corner of the city. We have reached a point where they are no longer customers. They have become friends. We are on familiar terms. We are with family here. Everyone appreciates this proximity. Poor people, bobos, ambassadors who come to change their phones. This proximity can't be found anywhere else. Before, in the service business, we used to find this with the hairdresser and the baker. Even today, at the butcher shop, you have to take a ticket to get in line. This is not the case here. We're close to our customers. Um, so I thought that that, I mean, that's, that's uh, I, I found that in like a very wonderful uh, passage that yeah. Uh, speaks to the to the whole thing and that there's a particularly kind of like cryptic line that uh, I, I don't know maybe we're not in the position to unpack where he says most people who come from the third world need self-esteem they need to value themselves and it's very unclear if he's talking I guess he's talking about his customers I guess he's talking about the sense of security and effective investment they have in the phone but maybe the sense of recognition just by establishing a relationship with him um, it's a very rich kind of suggestive moment. Yeah, and it's super touching. I mean, uh, especially when you think about how he started and how he moved. Last, last, last things we heard, he, he started a, a, a burger chain uh, restaurant uh, in uh, because there's a new there's a new there's a new train station that connects France and Switzerland. And he, I think he bought before the the the, the, the train lines opened, he, bought, he, he, he started the, the shop so that when the, the train lines would open, there would be like a good clientele. So he's an entrepreneur and it's, and it's I mean, the, the passage you read is, is fantastic. The part of I, the, the third world thing, I would never use that kind of terminology and expression, but I, I found it interesting to see him using it uh, as, as, as a way to show also his expectation and the way he reads the city and where to uh, I mean, how to build his 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 his, his community and 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 clientele, and that's yeah. I think it's um, to me it says a lot about some kind of counterpoint to like digital cultures and digital technology. It's also this. It's also like this kind of uh, this kind of uh, of guys and community and network and nodes uh, of a of a network that is. And it's the same guy who's at the the shop in Lyon where you can buy parts because he had friends in mm -hmm. Shenzhen. They, I mean, this 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 world. I mean, this this is important. It's a. It's definitely not Elon Musk, but it's something else. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm more into this kind of profile, I have to say. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, Patrick, for pointing. I haven't read this part yet, so looking forward. <laughs> there's, there's probably one, one aspect that we haven't uh, mentioned that yeah, yeah. I think is important to highlight also. Is the um, I mean the way they, we talked about like the diploma and the expertise, mm -hmm. and and part of it is like like uh, some of them have like diploma in uh, engineering or like electronics, but most of them 
beyond that, they have this kind of ethos or impetus to unmount, dismount, tear down object. And, and they build, I mean, that's the part of the conclusion is about that, is about trying to frame those places with regards to the whole discourse in STS and anthropologies and ethnographies of laboratories. And there's, you know, there's this notion of critical making that uh, Matt Reto uh, in uh, Toronto uses to describe the way you learn by making stuff. And uh, I, I mean, we, we try to like, we, we coined the term like critical unmaking because mm-hmm. that's probably a, a, a way to reflect on what those people are doing. As I mean, as soon as there's a new model, they have to tear it down and try to understand how it works, how to repair it. And in the process, they probably waste money and time and resources because it's super expensive to buy the new iPhone. But in doing so and in, in trying to uh, meet the needs of their clients, they build some kind of expertise, some kind of know-how that you can lab, label as a sort of like research and it's the equivalent of research and development. I mean, I, 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 I joked about like Elon Musk before and all those tech entrepreneurs, but what, they, what they're doing is also some kind of like, like, like with a mix of reverse engineering and, and, and connection with like supply chains of parts and documents, they, they, they build some very inventive uh, investigation about how to understand technology and repair it and meet the needs of their client. And that for me, uh, and, and in doing so, they do it in s- sort of in between like the capitalist system where they have to like be paid to do that, but also doing it for the community. Sometimes they do not ask people to pay them or they uh, like spend like countless of hours of labor work that is totally uninteresting uh, uh, financially speaking, but they do it for because they want to help the client or they want to know and build their expertise. And this reminds me of like the, the way like Anna Singh in a work about like the, the mushroom at the end of the world, she described like mushroom pickers in Oregon uh, as somehow living in a sort of patch in between capitalism, like finding those mushrooms and selling them to Japanese rich and wealthy Japanese people, but doing this also for the sake of the pleasure of doing it. And also because they could not do anything else because they, they had like, a, uh, like social problems. And there's something interesting in the way, like some, some of the shops operate in a sort of patch as well, like this notion of patch for, from, from Anatsing. There's some kind of patch of digital bricolage that, that exists in those places that I think is, I mean, it's like the, 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 the passage that, that Patrick read. I think it's important to shed some light on this and, 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 and help show people, like our readers or policymakers or people in digital technology, understand like all those nuances that I think are quite revealing uh, about repair practices. Yeah, it's also, I guess, a patch of the spaces that are available for migrants or diasporic people in Europe, that if, if you want to open an activity, you don't have that many choices. I mean, you can you can experiment, yeah. but probably this is the patch yeah, that is most open. Um, probably, yeah. They are the people doing the field work, you know, they are there and they are the one doing the what we call the user experience or customer experience every day. So I guess that's something that, that should be should be understood and uh, highlighted, I guess. And also like in this last um, interview, uh, the way this uh, shop owner adapted many times many times and is still adapting to the market and um, also highlight how 
how uh, he observes what is happening, where the opportunities are, and how flexible he is in his behavior. So I found that really fascinating. And he even, I mean, at some stage, we even offered to with some artists to, to create an exhibition in one of the shops, I mean, in his shop. And he was super happy with the idea, totally open to have like a contemporary art exhibition in his mobile phone repair shop. So... That's also to highlight the op open-minded, um, uh, yeah, mindset of of this person, this person, perhaps some of these people um, in general. So you had this exhibition? Did it happen? Oh yeah, it happened, yeah. and there were actually a lot of people there, and like yeah, people were really happy in the shop, in the neighborhood, and yeah, it was nice. Covid, pre-Covid, pre-Covid, yeah. I saw you, Nicholas, have a book out. You're promoting. Oh, yeah, now. there's some kind of traffic jam with books because yeah. of COVID. <laughs> yeah, I have this other book about. Uh, it's a bestiary. It's called the bestiary of Anthropocene. It's yeah. um, it's a sort of compendium of like I. I mean, it's totally different kind of project. It's more about like the anthropology of uh, of of nature and the environment. And it's sort of compendium of dif different kind of hybridized species between nature and artificial technologies like, like antenna trees, which are 4G or 5G uh, 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 cell phone towers or like plastic glomerates or those kind of like um, uh, rocks that have a mix of uh, mineral and plastic. Um, I mean, it's, it's a sort of compendium of those hybridized uh, creatures as a field handbook to understand the, the Anthropocene with texts by Benjamin Bratton, Anatzin, Geoffrey Boker, and, 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 other, and other people and, and friends. And I have also another project I'm currently writing a grant for about, um, I mean, the next step after taking care of repairs, I'm interested in uh, digital rubbish, digital, mm. uh, the remnants of digital technologies that exist, I mean, that, that people have at home or in the trash and how people, how, how practices around that could be seen as alternatives to the industrial recycling okay. uh, practices. So e-waste, digital waste. Uh, digital waste, uh, mm. recycling from the human practices, like how artists, how certain communities in gaming, for instance, try to make those things last longer and probably create weird art installations with oh, that right. and, and understand what they learn uh, on the way, what, what, what kind of expertise they build and what kind of object they create. Would it also be a similar work, like uh, grounded in some ethnographic research? Yeah, and... yeah. yeah, probably, but I'm still at like writing the research grant, so okay. <laughs> we'll see. Cool, looking forward. Uh, yeah. what, what about you, Anais? Uh, well, at the moment, I work, so I, I work on, a, on another project on repair as a, as a cons consultant. I mean, I'm also producing visual material for the project. And, um, and yeah, it's nice because it has another approach. It's more historical. And it's in Luxembourg, which is a place which I didn't really know before working yeah. on that project. So. And now we even have to work on this fieldwork online. So it's like a third perspective. <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah. And Luxembourg is even more unlikely than Switzerland. You're just going uh, smaller and smaller. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's next? The Vatican or like yeah, Liechtenstein? Liechtenstein, yeah. like the super small countries. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing uh, 
all about Thanks. your work. Um, is it, uh, can, can people find it? Uh, is it an only digital edition or is it? No, it is, I mean, there's a, printed, there's a printed edition, but I can also give you there's a, an open access. Oh, it is open uh, access. Version. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and can I just add? Yes. Uh, if there are any academic or art world publishers looking to put their money where their mouth is and hire someone to read audiobooks, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, my DMs are open. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's Good. why you I mean, read the passage. Nice. That was a, like a test test for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to know. It's actually a super good idea. I would love yeah. to <laughs> to to get like some audiobook of like scientific uh, writings. Oh well, well we, we have the next project ready. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Well thanks okay. for this. Thanks for this. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you. thank you. We'll let you go after a long day of work, I imagine. But <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Was, thank you for uh, really interesting space and time. You keep thanks. the good work with uh, with the podcast. It's uh, yeah, it's fun. Always it's... like intriguing, intriguing perspectives and topics. Super interesting from from my end. I, I I I yeah. I can remember certain places in the mountains or in the lake where I listen to certain oh, wow. podcasts. Wow. So it's uh, it's, uh, it's good. Keep the good work going. Yeah. Great. Okay. Have a nice evening. Yeah. Thank you very much. You too. Bye, everyone. Let's keep in touch. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.